Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Coleman. And I'm Louise Palenker. What we do every week is cherry pick the best from the tsunami of new media offerings for you. Content from anywhere, streaming, cable, broadcast, print. We offer our suggestions leading up to introducing you to fascinating guests. Our guest this week is Emmy Award winning director Dan Partland. We're going to talk to him about his new film, God and Country. It's about the rise and increasing grip that Christian nationalism has in America. It's produced by Rob Reiner. All I'm going to say to you right now is please watch this film before the elections in November. It's fascinating, it's scholarly, it's respectful of Christianity, but it's scary as hell. Can't wait to talk to Dan. We'll do that in a minute. Wheezy, what do you have? Fritz, did you know that uh, a show about sad, rich people is a genre? No. Yes, it's a very true fact. It's called a prestige drama. So it's kind of like a cozy mystery, but with more wardrobe changes and less murder. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to be talking about expats, just so that you can prime your brain or start your Googling. We somehow like to watch rich people being sad because we get to experience their nice homes and clothes and views without their heap of troubles. (laughs) But through watching, we can hopefully gain some wisdom about privilege and loss and class and relationships and parenting. In Expats, we meet Margaret, played by Nicole Kidman. She is, by the way, the queen of the prestige drama. Yeah, wait a minute. She's, just, in a, she's in a series? I can't believe just it. Just give her that due respect. Yeah. Uh, so she plays Margaret, and uh, she's a wife, a mother, an American landscape architect with no land to scape while living an elegant life in anguish in Hong Kong. The source of her pain remains unclear for about two episodes, and the viewer gets to piece clues together, slowly establishing how the people we meet are connected and what could have gone so horribly wrong. Ji Young Yu plays Mercy, a young Korean American woman who believes she is cursed. Parents, be careful what you tell your children. The imprint creates ripples. Sari Yu Blue is Margaret's best friend and neighbor, Hillary. Her dissolving marriage is caught in the crossfire of Margaret's tragedy and embedded in all of the scandal and misery are the household employees, also expats who see and know more than both their employers and the audience. Based on the book by Janice Y.K. Lee, The Expats is a six-part series, and I'm only four episodes in, so I can and I will only say so much. It's a deep look at blame, guilt, regret, accountability, and Hong Kong, where, incidentally, it is not available. It's been banned it's not available to be viewed in in Hong Kong, and that is because the series takes place against the backdrop of the 2014 umbrella movement protests when the people resisted the new Chinese government crackdowns as China reclaimed Hong Kong from the British. So I think they were like, yeah, Nicole Kidman, come on in. And then once they viewed what she had filmed, they were like, yeah, no, we don't want anyone here to see that. No, no. So, but you will find you here in America or wherever you're listening to this podcast, perhaps Italy, perhaps Germany, perhaps Ireland or Canada, you will find expats on Prime. I'm just glad to see Nicole Kidman getting some work. Yeah, she takes a lot of baths. So if you're down for that, that's what's going on. I'm totally down with that. All right, I want to talk about uh, Genius, MLK, and X. It's a perfect way for you to celebrate, pardon me, Black History Month. It's two of the greatest African-American voices during the Civil Rights era. This is the latest in the Genius series by Imagine Films, Ron Howard's company. It follows biographies on Pablo Picasso and Albert Einstein, and I love both of them. This movie is a split screen 
on-screen multi-part series of the lives of Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. It cuts back and forth between their upbringings, their strong fathers, the injustices they both experience, their desires to make a better world for blacks, but through different methods, their lives as fathers and parents, and ultimately, both of their deaths by assassination. Martin's assassination was done by a lone outsider, Malcolm's by a disaffected insider within the nation of Islam. They both wanted victory for African Americans, Martin's through nonviolent protest, Malcolm's by any means necessary. It's a great look at how important their wives were as strong supporters and spiritual guides, Betty Shabazz and Coretta Scott King. More has been documented about the life of Dr. King. He's gone on to become one of the greatest national heroes, obviously. Less is public about uh, Malcolm X. Spike Lee's amazing film with Denzel Washington drew the greatest spotlight on Malcolm's life. But if you look at the arc of the life of Malcolm X, from what he witnessed at the hands of the Klan when he was young, Malcolm Little in Omaha, Nebraska, to the suicide of his father, to the institutionalization of his mother, to his time in prison, where he was first exposed to the teachings of Nation of Islam prophet Elijah Muhammad, to becoming a radical black nationalist, to the third act of his life, which I find the most fascinating, where he undergoes a radical change of heart. Malcolm traveled to the Middle East to do what Muslims refer to as making the Hajj. This is a yearly pilgrimage that the most faithful make to the holy city of Mecca in Saudi Arabia. When Malcolm got to Mecca, he realized that the Muslim religion wasn't just made up of all blacks. They're all races making the Hajj, including many whites. This was a revelation to Malcolm X, and it profoundly changed how he viewed his mission on Earth. Martin Luther King Jr. is played by Kelvin Harris Jr. Malcolm X is played by Aaron Pierre. MLK and X is currently streaming on Hulu, Nat Geo, and Disney+. Plus. It's a great piece of work. Really, wow. I really, it's a, it's a great way to celebrate Black History Month. Yes. Let's bring on Dan Partland. Dan is an Emmy-winning director. One of his most recent works is a doc about Trump, and I just love this film. It's called Unfit, The Psychology of Donald Trump, currently streaming on Netflix. It was a fascinating film because before his film, I think, mental health professionals were hesitant to wander into the haunted house of Donald Trump's brain without formally analyzing him. But the public evidence was so clear through Trump's own public speech, through social media, that psychologists felt comfortable in taking a stab at him. It's eye-opening work, and I recommend it after you see his current film. It's called God and Country, produced by Rob Reiner. It's about the Christian nationalism movement and how it's metastasized in America. Now, before we enrage any people of the Christian faith, here's what Dan says about the film and about the topic. Christianity is in crisis. To be clear, Christianity is not the problem. And having one's faith informed by politics is not the problem. The problem is the intertwining of Christian identity with political identity, and it becomes hard to see where one ends and the other begins. It's a great way to describe this film. Dan, we've been really looking forward to talking to you. This is not the first time we broached the subject on this podcast, I'll tell you. First of all, I think, I, I think what we need to do is have you define what Christian nationalism is, and we'll go from there. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me, and thanks for that great uh, introduction. Um, well, 
the um the hardest part of the film is defining christian nationalism that's the hardest part of having a conversation about it at, at all and we spend a fair amount of time in the film trying to say what it really is and there's a complicated multifaceted direct um uh, description of it but what it really is is about the people's belief that the united states was founded to be a christian nation and their desire to create uh, to write christian uh, principles into law and Christian, and to create a separate class of citizens that to make it so that the United States is really everyone's on an equal plane, but Christians and especially white Christians are on a privileged plane. So we're all steeping in, in the news, a yep. lot of us. And so today, you know, the question is whether or not uh, the Speaker of the House is going to bring to the floor a vote to aid, to aid Ukraine. And what 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 I'm wondering, you know, what I always wonder when I watch the behavior of elected officials is are they are they serving America or are they serving their dream of a a Christian theocracy? What and everyone will say, oh, no, he's afraid of Trump. He's afraid of Trump. That's what everyone says. And I don't know that that's the full story. What are your thoughts? Well, so one of the central questions for the film is. um well, first, the film lays out what the real threat to American democracy is of this movement. And it is it is a, a real threat to American democracy because of the ways in which it, it's it's very entrenched and it is using it's very well financed, very well organized. And it is using both democratic and anti-democratic means to assert its will. Let me explain how how that works a little bit. Mm -hmm. The democratic means are are generally things that we believe in, right? You should make your case to the American people, persuade people to believe as you want to believe, and then we'll vote on it. And in general, that's the American way, right? We want the majority to rule, with a couple of exceptions. Um, the Bill of Rights is specifically an anti-majoritarian um, uh, bulwark in the constitution we don't we do the founders did recognize the potential for the tyrannies of majorities just because a majority of people feel a certain way doesn't mean we can trounce on the rights of others and that's why the very first amendment in the constitution enshrines the idea of a separation of church and state separation of church and state is there to protect minority faiths and people of no faith at all but it's also there to protect the faithful Right, because the United States was founded by actually a lot of different religious groups, groups that were fleeing religious persecution elsewhere. And so the founders understood that if you wanted religion to flourish in America, you needed to have a secular government. So the secular government is what allows religious freedom to happen. So what the Christian nationalist movement is trying to do is say that, hey, we if we can get majorities we can we can um write christianity or what or their vision of christianity it's not christianity we'll talk about that in a second but that we can we can write our values into law and so yes of course if you can get majorities you can you can and you should with so long as you're not trouncing on other people's religious freedom the problem is that it also become they're also using anti-democratic um, measures to do so. And among those are obviously gerrymandering, um, voter suppression, and now we're even at a point of violence. So if you look at the 2020 cycle, you can see 
yes, there are, there are state legislatures around the country that have been captured by you know majorities who are partial to this ideology, who are rewriting districts, who are making let fewer and fewer voting options available in districts where they don't have good representation. They're adding to it a tremendous amount of investment in a voter turn, a truly sophisticated high-tech voter turnout operation that is essentially goosing online algorithms to you know to bring you know to to activate their voters. So. If you can do all of those things, you really can control an electorate, even with only, you know, as little as 20 or 30 percent of the vote, which is probably about what what it's at. So the net result of all of this is that even though the Christian nationalist political agenda, and that's really what it is, it's not it's a misnomer to call it Christian nationalism. It's not really Christian. It identifies itself as a faith, but it's really political ideology masquerading as a faith. And it's not a very popular one. But they're able with maybe as little as 30% of the vote to um, enshrine a lot of their ideas into American law that the rest of us are then stuck with. And, you know, there's another misnomer uh, going back to the founders saying that they intended it to be uh, follow the, the the edicts of Jesus Christ. That's not true. Many of the founders weren't even Christian. They were deists and they, they did not worship Jesus Christ, they thought God was av- available in all forms of nature. And so, and when I hear them say that from the pulpit, I say, no, that's, you're, you're lying. <laughs> one one yeah, question, a, go ahead. Well, like all good bits of, of disinformation has a kernel of truth. In right. It. And that, that's how, that's how um, good disinformation works. Christian nationalists are, are masters at this. They say, well, it's a Christian nation. It says in the in the Declaration, I'll give you a couple of examples, but when it says in the Declaration, um, all all men are created equal, they are endowed by their Creator. They are endowed by their Creator. There you have it. It's a Christian nation from the beginning. The problem is, we actually have very good records about the ways in which the founding documents were written and happened, and we have the previous draft of the, of the Declaration. The previous draft, Jefferson, in his original draft, wrote God. And we also have it lined through, and we have the notes, to change this word because it sounded like they were talking about a Christian God, and they wanted something broader than that, because they, because what the founders really believed in was natural rights. They didn't believe in God-given rights. And that's why they, look, the, the Declaration is fully 13 years before they have a Constitution. By the time they write the Constitution, there is no reference to God. There is no reference to a Creator, even. There is no rest, reference to Jesus or to Christianity. How could a document that was so thoughtful and so precise about what it was setting out to do have mm-hmm. made such a huge omission to not mention these things that supposedly are are foundational. And even this, I've said to, you know, Christian nationalists, and they make the uh, counter-argument is like, well, it says that's not true, they would say. God, you know, the Christian God is referenced in the Constitution. You know where it's referenced? It's referenced on the dateline. They say, they sign the document, they say, in the year of our Lord, 1789. So the question, you know, that yeah, may so that's be a, a calendar. It's not a deity. Okay, <laughs> it may be a non-trivial point. You mm-hmm. know that that the context that they lived in was was very dominated by Christian by by Christianity, um, but I hardly think it's enough to offset all of the very deliberate, thoughtful words that the founders also put in to well, say you- that they want any religion in their government. Yeah, they were they were very specific about that because of their history, which you talk about in your film. Andrew Seidel talks about the history of the Pilgrims and the Puritans and 
the mistakes that were made therein with creating their new life. You know, they were leaving oppression, but then they created new oppression once they got here. So talk about how the founders were using that history as their premise to build a government that was not uh, constructed around some sort of deity or some sort of religious beliefs. Well, they understood that that as soon as you said that the church would control the government. Well, the founders had a complicated relationship with religion because you have to remember that the church, the Church of England, the Anglican Church, was 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 a quasi-state actor. It was an extension of the crown, mm-hmm. and they were very skeptical of of any particular church because churches in their time, you know, were oppressing each other, were fight, were causing friction and fighting each other. So the question is, if the church was going to co- going to lead the government, the immediate question would be, well, which church? Because there was every reason to believe that different denominations still under the heading of Christianity were going to be at, you know, were going to be at odds and at war with each other about how to interpret the Bible and how was that going to be beneficial to free to a free pluralistic society. And the United States is inherently a pluralistic society, so they knew they needed a framework if freedom was going to be the goal, and freedom of religion was really central in what they meant when they wanted this to be a free country, then that meant that people were going to have, there was going to have to be a framework that allowed everybody to practice in the way they wanted to. Your film also talks from several uh, interesting viewpoints that the virus underlying Christian nationalism is racism. And you can analyze that going back, you know, the Tea Party moving on back. Talk about that a bit. Well, I think um, I think there's no overstating the role of race in creating the current Christian nationalist movement. The film also points out that Christian nationalism has been in the United States all along. There's been waves of Christian nationalism, times when it's risen up. Um, but the current iteration really is born um, out of the social justice um, uh, movements of the late 20th century, right? 1954, Brown v. Board of Education integrated schools. And in the wake of school integration, it was believed by a lot of people in the segregationist South that they could skirt the government's authority to, um, to desegregate if they went to essentially private um, religious um, segregation academies. There's not a there's not a lot of overt racism. There's some overt racism, but it's not about overt racism. It's a deeply layered thing that is baked into it. But if you see what really is driving the movement at every different step that has been notched up, it really has been a response to more racial integration and racial equality. Yeah, and going back to Brown v. Board. When people were reacting to that, reacting to integration, they decided to make these uh, private uh, religious schools, which turned out to be just a way to be able to safely put white kids in a school without black kids. I mean, it didn't. They, it was not a written mandate, but that's what it turned out to be. Yeah, and 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 the they turned out to be wrong about that about the. <laughs> They felt that 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 was going to be kind of safe from federal government oversight because we do have the separation of church and state. So they could have tremendous liberty to decide who could come to their schools. And and they they can and they do. 
The problem is um, it was really the IRS that cracked down on that. Because if you were going to get a tax exemption, and in other cases, the government does this, um, exercises this authority by um, by its financial support of, of some uh, educational and religious institutions, both. Um, if you're going to receive a tax exemption or if you're going to receive government um, support, then you have to integrate. You cannot discriminate. You 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 can discriminate in a lot of contexts. Um uh, if you if if you are not expecting to have government support or or a tax advantage, so it was really the IRS that came down on this, and that was proved to be actually very effective because um, the tax um, advantage that religious institutions enjoy really underlied their whole um, business model, and it'd be very very damaging to their ability to continue to to operate their institutions if they weren't going to receive that advantage, and that's really what forced them to integrate. Weezy, I just want to add one point to that, mm-hmm. talking about tax-exempt status. What drives me nuts in this whole thing is that it used to be verboten for people to talk political stuff from the pulpit or you would lose your tax-exempt status. And then Falwell from the pulpit in Liberty University and these other guys started talking about it. But when did the, when did that, the control over that stop? They have voting cards that they give out. Yeah, I mean yeah. now now it's it's uh, sermons have become all politics. I'll tell them exactly how to vote. You know, it's a very, this this is the really difficult part. There's a lot of places where separation of church and state is very very clear and easy to enforce and easy to follow, but this is where it becomes a very slippery slope because your religious belief absolutely can inform your can and should inform your political beliefs. You know, that's, there, there, there really can be no line drawn there if what we're talking about is what are the moral judgments that inform your politics, mm-hmm. right? Don't tell Martin Luther King that faith is not political. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course it's political. Um, the difference is that when you're talking about MLK, of course, his moral perspective was informed by his faith, and he wasn't shy about talking about that. But when he, when you make the case to the civic society, to the civil society, not just to you know to a church group or something like that, you need to be persuasive on the level of the civil society. So he didn't come to the American people and say, "Hey, this is what we need to do because my faith says so." First of all, it wouldn't have been persuasive. Second of all, changing laws because my faith says so is does run afoul of the First Amendment. What he said was he drew values from that faith. And what he said was we need to change this. Why? Because of human dignity, because of justice, because of the importance of peace. You know, So the, that's an example of taking values from a faith and putting them to work politically. Mm-hmm. When a pastor gets up on their... Uh, you know, at their um, in their congregation, and is hawking voter guides. Mm-hmm. Very, very hard to distinguish where that line has crossed over, because mm-hmm. what they're saying is, here are the politicians and the policies that we think represent our moral judgments are consistent with the teachings that this particular church believes in. So what the actual embargo on what is verboten is partisan speech from the 
from the pulpit, not political speech from the pulpit. And as soon as you make that distinction, it's really, really easy to get around it. Well, there are a lot of us who don't believe that Donald Trump very often darkened the door of, of a church. <laughs> so before his first run for president, do you believe that Trump was tutored by evangelical tacticians, maybe Steve Bannon, to understand which talking points he needed to hit that would convince hard right Christians that he was their hammer? Ralph Reed. Ralph Reed? Oh, I, I'm sure he was. Uh, um, but I also think he... Um, I also think he has just a tremendous intuition about such things. I think he he saw the opportunity in of in creating a voting block. He understood that he could give certain um, concessions. But yeah, I'm sure he had help and guides. People were in his ear saying, you know, make sure you say this when he shows up at Liberty University, um, and and references what he calls, you know, two Corinthians. Um, you know, he's, he, he's not, he is so, um, uncomfortable, so ill at ease with, um, with quoting Bible references. He doesn't know that that's not how it's referred to, sure. but somebody told him, make sure you reference, you know, second Corinthians. So, so he, um, I think that there, those things were going on for sure. He was being counseled. Um, but I also think it was, it was a pretty well known playbook at that point for, um, their political right okay. about what you needed to do to lock in the support of evangelical leaders. And he did that. It was an easy bar to get over. And could you talk about the the far right coalition? Because it's bro it's a broader tent than most of us realize. And it's now embracing and including global authoritarians like Putin and Orban. And and that's when things get even even more dangerous and, and more and more scary for the future of our free society. Well, I, you know, I think it's, I actually think the, um, in some senses, it's less of a coalition, it's become more monolithic. Mm. Um, I think that, you know, the move between the, the 80s era, religious right, the moral majority and stuff like that, was a component of a Republican coalition that was piecing together political power with a, a little bit of, you know, a lot of economic conservatism, small government speech, and a little bit of social conservatism. Um, and over time, I think the um, Republican Party has actually lost many of those constituents. And the ones that the, the remaining one that has really grown has been um, religious conservatives. Now, I think that this term, it's really important that we digress for a second into this term evangelical, because evangelicalism is right now the largest denomination, in quotes, denomination in the United States. I put denomination in quotes because it isn't really a denomination, it's a descriptor. Uh, mm -hmm. Most denominations, you know, Episcopalians, you know, Presbyterians, they have actual um, hierarchies and they have a definition to what the shape of their denomination is, what the belief system is, how they interpret the Bible. Evangelicalism is really just a soft descriptor. And what recent research has shown is that it's the largest, it has a plurality of Christians, not a majority of American Christians, but the largest group of American Christians self-identify this way. But within that group, actually very small percentage of them are at all church-going, 
or grew up in an evangelical household. Um, so mostly they have latched on to this as a political identity, okay. one that they've seen on TV that tells them that if you adhere to this political um, list of deliverables, then this is how you express your um, your faith. This is being a good Christian and a good American is if you sign on to this list of political deliverables, and there isn't another way to be a good American or a good Christian. I, I think one of the most fascinating things about the evangelical bloc is that they have somehow convinced themselves that Donald Trump has been uh, delivered by God to save the planet. And he reflects back on all these, you know, flawed people from the Old Testament and everything. But this is really having to suspend your disbelief to, to, to do that. Take this guy, not only flawed, doesn't even describe it. Uh, what, where do you think that psychology comes from? Is it them just trying to convince themselves to make the politics work? I think so. I think I th I think that when you, you know, we got to remember who we're talking to. I mean, people. The nature of our media environment right now is that we're all in these information silos, and if you are hearing these messages reinforced again and again, if you're in a community that is largely um, conservative, Republican, you're watching certain news, you're hearing from certain pastors, these messages are getting re reinforced again and again and again. And it becomes, uh, you know, it, it becomes really hard to imagine. There's just a, such a social pressure that all good thinking, all people in our bubble all think this way. And it's really important to um, adhere to these values. And so when you're in that environment, um, and if you can convince yourself that this list of conservative political deliverables are actually God's will, then you can justify doing just about anything to make sure they're implemented. And I think that's one of the real um, important things that I hope people will take away from the film in trying to understand this movement, which is this understanding that a lot of American Christians have come to believe that the United States itself plays a kind of messianic role in human history. Yes, and in your film, you you travel to a lot of mega churches. The photography is beautiful in your film; it's just beautiful. And you you travel to mega churches, which a lot of us never get to see. And I I just really loved being there and seeing how people cloak themselves in the American flag to go to church. This is it's a part of their religious iconography has now become the American flag, which is so interesting to me. And I'm wondering how you were received at these churches, what you told them your film was about, and those experiences, how they how they were for you. Well, we we mostly, you know, there's a mix of footage in the film, some of it that we shot and some of it is, you know, uh, acquired footage that mm -hmm. is, is available publicly. Um, the We pretty much went to all of these things just as consumers, I mean, you can buy a ticket. You can buy a ticket and go. And um, we filmed alongside other people who who filmed um, camera. You know, sometimes on camera phones or just small consumer stuff, just mm -hmm. like anybody else. Um, but it is fascinating to embed in those environments, and that is one of the things that you hope to do in a documentary. Is you know, mm -hmm. people these are take people with the camera take people to places that aren't easy to go to try to share with them some of the insight some of the experience that you had in making the film and and so i think that they those 
those spaces can be quite shocking. There's one thing that, you know, I would point out that we should all um, reckon with a little bit, which is this, the thing that is not in the film is that those those environments can also feel very warm. Mm. And that's a really important thing. I think what you, you really feel how much people crave community of like-minded people. And the fact of 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 being there at a, say a reawaken America event, um, people assume, hey, you know, we're you and I are the are the same, and they just it's a it's a really warm, generous entry point. The at what's what is confounding about it is the also the incredible amount of anger and rage and vitriol, like the these rooms do get whipped up into a hyper frenzy where you just feel like if somebody came in the door and you know wearing a hat that said democrat or where you're saying like i love joe biden or something that they would just they could be you know pummeled one of your really loud evangelists said i don't want any democrats in this uh, uh, in this church and i thought wow that just about says it all right there. And you well, have Bishop and Barber, in your film, Bishop Barber says that they are very loud about what God says very little about, and then very quiet about what really matters. What, what You know, everything he says is just so beautiful. He's just a great voice of wisdom in your film, at the beginning yes. and at the end. But fear, you know, you t- your film talks about what a great motivator fear and anger are. And what can we do to work against that? Hmm. What can we as just people that care about our country what if if love and hope and uh progress aren't enough to work against fear and anger what what i mean you you've you've been sitting with this project for probably a few years so what are your walking away points that that you're going to go through the world with well i mean it is there's there's many steps i think to try to unwind this problem and mm-hmm. try to um and try to you know bring people back into the fold one of the great tragedies i think of what christian nationalism is is that a lot of the people most of the people are they're kind of swept up up in it in an unwitting way mm-hmm. i mean i think it really is a leadership driven movement the leadership is becoming very rich and politically powerful and the rank and file are just, you know, are trying to be good citizens and they're trying to be good Christians and they're they're following people who are misleading them, misleading them with untrue things, uh, you know, the things that bring on that kind of fear and anger. Um, I think that the film was definitely envisioned as first, of course, to shine a spotlight on it and tell everybody about it, because from my perspective, the, um, the United States is sleepwalking into this problem. This problem has grown in the background for decades now. For a long time, it was believed to be fringe and maybe not that relevant, not that important. Let people believe what they believe. That's the thing. Americans really do believe in religious liberty. And so if you can tell people that this is Christian, then they're going to have their hands off it. That What we first have to do is tell people that this is not Christian. This mm. is this is a political um, agenda masquerading as faith. And then I think, honestly, we made the film, in a sense, as a calling card. I know how hard it is to talk about these things. I know that every family out there is being torn apart by this, has some relative who slides up a whole wing of the family or just one or two people who are starting to slide. 
I know that if I am sitting across the table from relatives of mine who are falling off this, that I, it's a very, very hard assignment. But you could show them the film. And we very much made the film with that in mind and have and have been encouraging people to some success already, even in limited numbers, to say, will you watch this for me? Now, you're not going to share this with the relative who's fully down the road, right? Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of Christians right now who are very uneasy with a lot of different things they see happening in their, their faith, in their community, the, 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 the misalignment of their values with their political um, beliefs, who I think are ready to hear that message. And we've compiled the best voices, unimpeachable voices, the full spectrum, Christian conservatives, pro Christian progressives, people who are not people of faith who approach it from an academic side, people who are, you know, historians. Like, there's a huge diversity of voices in the film. They're the very best voices on the topic. We've sort of distilled it down into something where people are not going to read all of their books, which would be amazing, but maybe you could watch for 90 minutes and you could pass it to a relative and you could say, hey, I'm not telling you what to think. Would you watch this for me? And I'd love to talk to you about it on the other side. Or maybe offer to watch it with them. Sure. Sure, absolutely. We, one way or another, we have to engage it. That's the, that's the thing, you know. They, we have to engage the conversation. And I think that for those of us who are really angry and frustrated with what's going on when you see this movement, we're also going to have to demonstrate, here's the great paradox of the whole thing, we're going to have to dig deep to live up to the best Christian values. Whether you're a person of faith or not doesn't really matter. We have to bring what I see as those core values forward, which is how about turning the other cheek? You know, we're appropriate. This is not a thing to fight about. We can turn the other cheek. Um, what about doing unto others? When somebody is attacking the film, this is happening online, you know, attacking me or other participants, the getting getting grief, you know, on the in social media, like you got some really great, funny, snarky re rejoinder, but you know, maybe this is time to do unto others as you would like to have them do unto you. What about the the, <laughs> the command in Christianity to love not just your neighbors, but to love your enemies, love love your, see the humanity in them and try to bring it out. You know, I think this is where we have to go, the making the least of these, putting the last first, making the least of the, elevating people who have very little. I think we need to exercise all of those things to try to connect with people who've gone down the wrong road, and I think to bring them back into the fold with our own version of kindness and love and respect for our shared humanity, even if we disagree with them very much on some political ideas. That sounds wonderful. Uh, here is the political battle, though, along those same lines. Those of us who are not connected with any religion, particularly Christianity, there's this intense fear that we seem to be moving toward autocracy in this country. But to a Christian nationalist, since America is here to play out God's plan, which is their basic belief, if democracy happens to get in the way of that role, religion wins. So, you know what I mean? That, that That's the tough argument. Yeah, no, that's 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 what I was um, starting to talk about before, about the, the, if you see the United States as playing an essential role in God's plan for humanity, and you feel like the United States is moving away from what it needs to do for God's plan for the world, you can justify doing 
you know, tremendously awful things in order to make sure that God's will is done. And this is, this is the, at the core of it, I think what we have to understand about the insurrection. I think that there is no amount of data and reason that can be shown to tell people that, of course, Donald Trump did not win the election because they don't really care about that. What they're caring about in that moment that they're trying to, you know, overthrow democracy in their mind to save democracy is that they're trying to do what they believe quite deeply is God's will. Now, I'm not saying that everybody who was at the Capitol was in this category, but I think that a tremendous amount of the driving structure and what we call, or what one of our experts in the film calls, the permission structure for attacking American democracy really came from this idea that they believed that it was God's will. Well, there's a, a at a crucial moment in your film, you pause. It's right before you get to the insurrection. You pause to remind us that Hitler rose to power in a Christian nation and that his agenda of hate and mass murder was embraced under an umbrella of religious and ethnic purity. Hitler was welcomed as a gift and a miracle from God. Very similar language to what we're hearing right now proclaimed by by MAGA. Yeah, I mean, look, it's, and it's not just the Third Reich. You, you know, when you look through history, mm -hmm. I think there's an argument um, to be made that really some of the absolute most vile and reprehensible things that have gone on in human history have been justified as God's will. Mm. And I think there's a reason for that. The, and, and we're experiencing a bit of that reason right now, which is there are certain things that emotionally may make sense to people, whether they're true or not, that they desperately want to believe but they are failing to convince people through reason and logic. They are not persuading people. And so when you're not persuading people, but you still believe it as strongly as you can, like for instance, slavery, like segregation, that you believe you just believe that you know one people should be on top of another people, and you're failing with reason and logic. You play the trump card and you say look it's god's will because then it's not it's not really susceptible to the rules of reason and logic if it's god's will wow. and you could probably find anything in uh, any religious text whether it be the bible or or the old testament or the new testament or the quran or any ancient religious text Absolutely. you could probably find something like the tower of babel or you know some parable to to illustrate your point the really, the really, really bad stuff that people feel really, really strongly about um, finds a way to happen. And if they can, if people can convince themselves that they're doing God's will, it, it's justification to do really horrific things. And we've seen it again and again in history. Um, you have some great spokespeople from all aspects of this topic, uh, religious scholars and social scholars. And uh, I think one of the most interesting ones was the person that compared Trump to a televangelist, and he has all the earmarks of a successful televangelist. His presentation, his the, the way he simplifies everything, and even his hair. <laughs> it was great. It's really a, stun a stunning insight from uh, Sky Jitani, who's a wonderful evangelical, um, he's an evangelical scholar and pastor himself, 
Um, he's a podcaster as well, has a, has a great um, Christian-focused podcast that discusses per current events every week. I check it out. It's called The Holy Post. Um, yeah, no, it's a tremendous insight. I think it's spot on. I think the really interesting, what we should do is the, the follow-up piece would be somebody should do a book or maybe a movie about why the hair. Why is it the hair a defining feature mm -hmm. of uh, of a TV uh, preacher? But I don't know. You, you see the same in like sort of famous defense attorneys. They have some sort of haircut that's just odd, where they wear a jacket with fringe. You know, there's just something defining. But um, not only is he like a televangelist, but he's the guy that your grandma is sending that check to. You know, and it used to be Jerry Falwell, and now it's going to Trump. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously Trump makes a tremendous emotional connection with certain people. Um, and for everybody who doesn't fall into that category, they're just left aghast because it's he so doesn't make a connection with me. But, you know, I think there there's a there's that old bit of wisdom about politics is that um, people people really connect with a politician who it's not so much about whether the people like them it's about that the the um the people feel that they that the politician like it's not about whether the people like the politician so much as whether the politician is perceived liking the people and and I think look I don't think Donald Trump does like his followers because I think he's a very very twisted psychology but I think that he connects with them and I think that they see him as being their champion because he believes the same things that they believe and a lot of these things are things that you know are easy to believe right they don't necessarily stand up to a lot of scrutiny they're not necessarily very smart they're not they they don't they're not necessarily that well informed but there's things that are easy to believe and so yeah when when there was an attack you know an attack on a um, by a anytime there's a, an attack and it's somebody it's islam extremist has attacked somebody like let's close the borders to all people of muslim faith or to these countries of muslim faith I think I I understand that on a certain level emotionally that really connects with people and they like the the ease and the simplicity of that. Any real scrutiny would show that like that is you know that that's not yeah, going to be making black and white out of anything. That's how it's like, it's, it's like turning a light switch on and off when yeah. most modern light switches are on a fader. So <laughs> so but the other thing is like I I my theory and you know this is a sweeping generality so forgive me. But my theory is that anyone who has been bullied or who has felt bullied, he's your guy. He's the bully that's protecting you from inj the injuries that you've incurred over the course of your lifetime. Those are the people, the people who feel weak, forgive me if this isn't the case with you and you and you love Trump, but people feel weak. He emboldens them. And he's your guy that's going to throw punches on your behalf. Well, when you look at the, you know, history of autocrats um, who are preaching ethno-nationalism, which I think it's safe to say Trump is, they, you know, what we, what they called in Germany, it was blood and soil, blood and soil. They're, they're, they're offering, what they're offering is not policies. That's why I think it's so absurd when people say, well, Trump, I don't like, you know, I don't like it. he's about, but I like his policies. Well, I mean, 
policies or whatever you can we can debate them but that's not really what people are responding to about trump it's not his policies what he's doing is what other ethno-nationalist leaders have done throughout history which is he is elevating the status of a certain profile of an ethnic profile and so what ethno-nationalism is it essentially the ethno-nationalist leader says i'm not going to give you anything we're not going to do anything for you, but we are going to put you at the top of the heap. We are mm. going to elevate your status in the society. Mm. And that turns out to be more important to people than just about anything. You are great just by virtue of you being you, because you are white, because you are a Christian, and because you were born in the United States, you ought to be at the top of the heap. And for people It elevates are, them above the elites. Uh, that's their that's, big yes. buzzword, you know? Amen. And and because you are feeling that your um, power, authority, status, clout in the culture has been so diminished, you're hearing debates on you know endlessly on TV about the race about racism in the United States that are saying that you know white people are are inherently aggressors and that people you know like you're hearing all of these messages that are making you feel very bad about yourself and about your community and somebody walks along and says we're going to put an end to that it's time to put you back at the top of the heap people are very ready to embrace mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. and you know and I, that the challenge for the left i think is to is to think about how we are messaging that mm -hmm. how how can we do both things how can we have a true accounting for what is good and bad in our society all the ways in which we've fallen short of our goals as you know to have a equal playing field and not have it just endlessly feel like certain people are getting beaten up and blamed for it and pushed down and, and have their prospects feel lower and lower we have to find a way to lift everybody up and put everybody on the same team to fix the playing field in this culture mm, i love that can you talk about your next project which will be from what I've read, hashtag untruth. Untruth, yes. yes. Untruth, the follow-up to unfit, which you guys talked at, at the top of the broadcast. I just wanted to make one correction. Unfit is not on Netflix. It is on Prime, okay. and it is on a bunch of other sites as well. Sorry um, about that. Not on, no worries. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, Untruth. Look, the, uh, the film Unfit, The Psychology of Donald Trump, um, really focused on Trump and the Trump administration, but obviously that is not really the issue at this point. The in issue is the psychology of Trumpism. And so Untruth is envisioned as a second part to that story that speaks more to this moment about the psychology of Trumpism um, and how it's proliferated around the culture. Well, I thought this, maybe you as a filmmaker can answer this question. I spent one of my, you know, healing exercises during the Trump regime was to cast the movie with friends. We would sit around and cast the movie. We decided that Ivanka would be played by a golden retriever. <laughs> so why it, we're three years into uh, Joe Biden's first term in office. Why has there not yet been a movie uh, taking us behind the scenes in, in the Trump White House? Is that coming? Well, that's a good question because it usually doesn't take that long for yeah. those kind of things to come out. Maybe I, the pandemic I and it's because the story is still being told. Yeah. I, I also think the nature of um, what's happening to the country of the hyper polarization, which I would say is now come beyond 
hyper negative partisanship into just extremism and it's and both sides are becoming more extreme um not that there's an equivalency um but i think that that actually has put significant financial pressure against a piece like that mm. so in other words in previous eras you know, you can make a film about the George W. Bush administration. There were a lot of people who loved Bush. There were a lot of people who didn't love Bush. But, you know, it was still something that everybody would go see. Yeah. Um, I think that the hyperpolarization, you know, in the entertainment industry has has meant that, yeah, nobody wants to make a film that out of the gate has a, is going to lose 40% of mm -hmm. the audience. Absolutely. Not and And also have have endless incoming. I mean, that's part of the thing about fascistic movements. It, when they say the cruelty is the point, the cruelty is the point because there is a chilling effect on speech. And there's no doubt we're seeing the chilling effect on speech. Obviously, Republican lawmakers around the country and Republican operatives of all kinds are not speaking candidly about what they think. That's a chilling effect on speech. Now you're pointing out that actual entertainment industry is not reacting the way that they would usually react. That's a chilling effect on speech. And so a film like God and Country or Unfit or Untruth, these things have to be made independently. These are not financed by big, uh, by big companies, big streamers, who not just for the the life and death of that particular project, but in general, don't want to be seen as having, you know, been have been in the camp of one side. If that's going to sow anger and inflame another side. Mm. Well, talking about media and right wing media, uh, to the unschooled, we would all think that the greatest conduit of uh, right wing extremist untruth would be Fox News. But you have a great point in your film about the fact that the Christian broadcasting systems are a huge, phenomenally successful um, means of communication for those of that mind. Well, it, you know, it's a silo. And, and I think um, I think that Christian Christian media is just it's a it's its own media ecosystem. There's not a lot of crossover. People who consume that don't consume that much in the mainstream media. People in the mainstream media frequently don't even know about Christian media. Um, they're they're two kind of parallel worlds and increase. You know, it used to be I would say, um, you know, back when I was a kid, there was there was a fair amount of Christian media there there always has been but at least on the entertainment side it was it was a little bit stiff it was a little bit dusty and that meant that it wasn't gonna you know take on you know gather big numbers but that that era is over I mean it's every bit of, it's it's every bit as entertaining um but it has increasingly a political slant it should be said that you know not all of of what's on Christian media it skews political but the stuff that does skew political is rather monolithic about the political ideas that it has. It's really just all speaking. Yeah, guys like Pat Robertson can be kingmakers. They get on there and they just blatantly support their pick for a president, and that has a big sway on people. Yeah, yeah for sure, for sure. But when we were kids, we never even knew that Gumby and Pokey were religious. We just were. <laughs> well, maybe if they had like we held up a, a Nixon the... sign, I would have gotten the, <laughs> what they were trying to tell me. <laughs> All right, we're going to close and uh, do our closing credits. Is there anything else you want to say, Dan, to guide people towards your film and what you It opens to, next week what, at the Landmark in Westwood, correct? And where else can folks find it? People should go to uh, www.godandcountrythemovie.com and click on the theaters tab. Um, it is playing at over 100 theaters around the country. It's very hard to get documentaries into theaters at all. Mm -hmm. uh, 
if you have any interest or if it's playing in a region, you know, with a relative or something like that, encourage people to go out and see it and go out quickly because the engagements will be very short. Um, but we do want to make sure that people see the film and that it's starting a conversation around the country. Down the road, um, I'm sure you'll be able to find it on streaming platforms, but at least in the in the near term, um, go out and see God and Country. We, we both think it's an extremely important piece of work and people need to educate themselves on this wave that we're not even aware of. Yeah, it's really good, Dan. Nice an, piece of work. It's an important motivator for a lot of voters. It explains the behavior of a lot of positions that you watch and you go, why, why is he doing this? Why won't he do this? It's because he's part of a religious cult mm-hmm. and that's what's fueling a lot of behaviors that we do not understand and so vote so that your life depend because your life does depend on it go ahead and say one more thing dan well i just want to say that you know for all of that what's really important to me and i hope that the movie does this on some kind of level is that it brings some people together we have to call out the problem but i think what's really important in this moment is that we all double down on our Americanness. I think we've lost a little bit of a sense of what's so special about this country and this idea of pluralism and religious liberty is really important to it. And I also think, and it's not my battle to fight because I'm mostly a secular person, but I also am just very heartbroken for the Christian faith. And I hope that the movie really helps to refocus a lot of Christians back to what is so great and beautiful about that faith that has done so much good around the world for centuries. Yeah, maybe we need to just tweet out, uh, Bishop Barber needs to tweet out the things that the Bible is saying a little bit too quietly nowadays. He's so good. He's yeah. really a wonderful way to begin and end your film. Because it's it's def- these are definitely the values that I hope we all want to live by. All right, here come your closing credits. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediaPathPod, and on Facebook, where our show page is MediaPathPodcast, and our Facebook group is MediaPath with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, MediaPathPodcast. We would love it if you would judge our appearance and then subscribe. You can write to us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. We want to know about the media that you have been enjoying. Tell us about your media path. If you enjoy this show, please give us a nice rating wherever you get your podcasts and share our social media posts so that your friends can learn about your excellent taste in podcasts. Our website is mediapathpodcast.com. It's a great place to browse around and find interesting episodes you may have missed. We also have a fun and sassy newsletter loaded with photos and quizzes and more dish about our guests. All the newsletters are right there for you to enjoy on our website and you can sign up to get your newsletter letters sent directly into your inbox and it's just one per week we understand healthy boundaries we want to thank our guest dan partland our team includes producer dina friedman john maddox bill Filipiak, mason brown garrett arch jordan reyes and you our theme music is by me and john maddox i'm louise palanker here with fritz coleman and dan partland be well and wise and we will see you along the media path Yeah, it was really fun. We're going to stand here.